0: Random Nomads? episode 43.
1: And I agreed to that knee jerk. It didn't even occur to me to ask myself the question of how do you as a young adult woman want to craft your life?
0: Welcome to Tandem Nomads, where inspiring expat partners from around the world share with you how they turn the challenges of relocation into great opportunities. So are you following your partner abroad for his or her career then tandem nomads is the place for you go to tandemnomads.com and sign up for the newsletter Hello Nomad Nation, this is De Deleghi. Today's episode is a little bit special because for the first time I decided to divide one of our inspiring expat spouses stories into two episodes. In fact, I invited an author and an expat spouse or trading spouse as she insists to be called, uh, Kristen Louise Duncombe. Her story is very, very fascinating. She tells us how she's been following her, at the time, fiancé to East Africa and all the personal crisis she went through, the identity crisis she went through. It's very rare that we have somebody that is willing to talk in such details about how she felt when she felt lost and not knowing who she was. So I decided to actually, because there's so much that's been shared that you might relate to or not, but at least I'm sure be fascinated with, is how this woman went from being completely lost and explaining why, to becoming this successful therapist that having her own portable business with her. Um, So the first part of this story, the first episode and what we will hear today is her journey through East Africa and what were all the challenges she's been through and there were many you will see and on the second episode next week you will find out how she managed to get out of this crazy situation to building the strong identity that she has today and a portable career and a portable business. So let's dive in. And uh, I can't wait to share this story with you. Kristen, are you ready for the ride? I am. Kristen is born to American diplomats and raised in various countries. Today, she lives in Geneva and is a psychotherapist who specializes in working with international and expatriate families. Kristen is also an author. Her first book was selected as one of the best indie reads, of 2013. It is called Trailing a Memoir, which tells her experience as a trailing spouse who followed her Médecins Sans Frontières husband in East Africa to help the populations that were suffering from wars and diseases. Christine also just published a new book called Five Flights Up, Sex, Love and Family from Paris to Lyon. This time, she counts her story, adapting to a new lifestyle in France and re- configuring everything she thought she knew about her expat life. So, Christine, this is like a very short overview of your long experience living abroad and trailing. So, is there anything I missed? And tell us where you're at right now.
1: Well, just to really bring the listener into my living room where I'm sitting right now, I am (laughs) sitting in the Saint-Jean neighborhood of Geneva, Switzerland, where I have lived less than a year and very happy to be speaking to you. I'm in the middle of a busy day. Um, As you mentioned, I am I'm a therapist. I work with individuals, couples, and families. And um, my daily life tends to be a bit of a juggle between my family life. I have two kids, ages 17 and 11. My husband, who of course works here in Geneva, My clients, I usually see anywhere from three to to six people per day. And then, of course, you know, working on my writing life, promoting my books. And it's just a busy time.
0: Let's jump back right now into your beginning of your trailing experience. So tell us where you were and how did you make the decision to suddenly move with your husband to East Africa?
1: To East Africa. Well, it's a very good question, and I want to start by explaining the reason I entitled the book Trailing, because it is true. I think, you know, most people that, term or at least in the Anglo community, that term is one that resonates, especially people in the expat world because they know what this notion of the trailing spouse is. Oh, there's a is. big
0: debate there too, but we're not yes. gonna we don't but have time
1: it's to the, go there. It's but
0: the
1: term that's that's a bit tongue-in-cheek exactly. because some people take great offense and say, I want to get rid of that word and we should be called the accompanying spouse or we should be called this, that, or the other. But for me it was important to use that word specifically because, um, well, first of all, having grown up as an expat kid when, you know, in less politically correct times, that's what the accompanying spouse was called. My mom was considered a trailing spouse. The friends of the mothers of my friends, also in the expat community in the countries we, we lived in, were called the trailing spouses. And I... Um, wanted to write about my own experience as a quote unquote trailing spouse, because when I agreed to follow my husband to East Africa, I think what really happened to me is, is that I found myself in the role of someone Trailing. And I say it like that because our story, just the very abbreviated version, is is that we met um in graduate school in New Orleans. I had um I, I moved back to the States when I was 18 years old, had a lot of adjustment difficulties. My mom and dad still lived overseas at that point. Um, so I would go back and forth between my college in Massachusetts and where my mom and dad were based in um, Jakarta, Indonesia, and then in Lagos, Nigeria. Mm. And after college, I moved to Seattle, um, lived in Seattle for four years, and then after a series of you know, young adult adaptation difficulties, which I just could not seem to get myself out of, mm. I decided that I wanted to settle down someplace, start my career as a therapist, And I moved to New Orleans with that idea in mind. And literally a day after I arrived in New Orleans, I met this (laughs) sexy Argentinian guy who was seven years older than me and who was already with Médecins Sans Frontières. We had a whirlwind romance and he asked me almost immediately if I would accompany him to the field. And note that I did say a company. Mm. So when he said, will you go off on my next MSF mission with me? I said yes, without even hesitating, because I knew what that meant. I had done that my whole life because, you know, my dad would get these assignments and there was never any debate. We would just go where he was assigned and that's how it was. And I thought that I knew how to do that. Hmm. So I turned in my own agenda. No one asked me to do it. I went in fully compliant. And I followed my new husband. You know, I, had, I barely knew him at the moment <laughs> that I married him. I was young and impulsive. And off we went. And when we got to Nairobi, I discovered that... Nothing was like what I thought it was going to be. First of all, unlike when I grew up in the Foreign Service with my parents, I did not realize that going off on an MSF mission with my husband meant that we were going to be living with the MSF team. And, you know, we were newlyweds. So you think about getting married and you think... Oh yes, isn't it going to be romantic and wonderful? Well, it really mm-hmm. was not very romantic. Mm-hmm. We lived in a team, um, in a team house, and I was the only person that wasn't part of the team. Mm. And every morning, the team, and that includes my husband, would get up and go, and they would be gone all day, usually into the night, and then they would come home together. And they were really a family already and working very intensively together on very intense, um, you know, medical missions. Like you said, there was, there was war, there was epidemics, there was famine. I mean, there was sort of everything that you could imagine in a humanitarian crisis context.
0: Mm.
1: And, um, I was, of course, very interested in all of this, but part of my frustration was is that I was there without any resources. And I was also extremely young. You know, I went off very gung-ho thinking that I knew exactly how to assimilate, but one of the things I learned on the ground was that you, you can't just show up in Nairobi, Kenya, just because you're a clinical social worker and just because you have a background in public health and say, okay, here I am. And now I'm going to do some good work. You know, mm-hmm. it's just, it doesn't work like that. You, you've got to be plugged in with an infrastructure that allows you to use whatever skills you might be bringing to the, um, to the situation. And I wasn't plugged in and not only was I not plugged in, I didn't have any support because I was alone all day. Because the team, and that includes my husband, was too busy to deal with me. So it's not to be all you know, woe is me, isn't that horrible? But the point is, is that I had to really struggle to figure out how to construct a life for myself. Um, Say so that goes back to why I wanted to use the term trailing spouse because I was the 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 love struck young woman who followed the guy to the field and found herself alone in Nairobi trying to figure out how to get on her feet. And I very much felt like I had become exactly that, someone that had been pulled along, I trailed, and I just didn't even know how to make sense of my life at that point. You know, uh,
0: Kristen, you've been summarizing so many important points of the life of a trailing spouse yes. and uh, you focus a lot on training and there is a debate I don't like personally the word trailing but you did justify very well why you do use it and I do understand it very well and there were some points if I try to summarize very important in the life of a trailing spouse the first one when you said you know it's not because I lived abroad that actually it's easy to adapt to a life of a trailing spouse abroad That's this first point the second one was the whole social aspect of it of arriving in a new place with no support system. Expats have usually a whole support system that's there to welcome them. They have colleagues, they have teams, they have infrastructure. Expat spouses most of the time do not have that and this is exactly what you experience when you arrive in a very extreme situation. The the third point that you mentioned is also the relationship, you know, that the fact that he didn't have the time to be there with you and accompany you in that transitional phase right and finally exactly. the other and there's also the important part which is your career you can't expect you just because you're talented and skilled that people would just want to hire you. So that's a lot of aspects of the identity construction that expat partners go through in every country. In your case, it was in a very extreme situation. And I want to know, how did you deal with it?
1: Yes. I mean, what what happened to me is it was extremely difficult and I did struggle, but I tend to be very proactive. And I got out there and I struggled and i and i i did everything i could think of to find a way to get involved in my own right in the Nairobi scene to contribute in some way, shape, or form. Because for me, sitting around the house idle was really a total nightmare and, and a depression inducing experience to be sitting around with nothing to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, one can read books and and that's fine, but
0: but need i a purpose.
1: Yes, I, and, and I had always been uh, career-minded. And I don't mean like, I needed to advance in my career. I mean that I really wanted to get involved. I wanted to be engaged. I wanted to uh, work with people. I wanted to, to have a life that used me. And so I really... Um, excuse my language, busted my butt to try Mm -hmm. to get some things going. There was a few, um, you know, mishaps here and there. I did a lot of volunteer work, but I ended up working for a spell as a social worker in um, a clinic for adolescents. Um, So there was that, and I picked up some consultancy work along the way. But the other main issue that I talk about in my book, Trailing, is um, the fact that six months into our stay in Nairobi, we were violently carjacked one evening. Mm. And I don't know exactly how things are now, but at the time that we lived in Nairobi, it was sort of at the height of the security crisis. And one night, we were um, basically chased down the road by five men with AK-47s who ran us off the road and tried to kidnap us, and they beat up my husband. And Mm. it was just, it was a very, very traumatic experience. And I I tell that story because it was a very traumatic experience for me. And it was traumatic for my husband while it was happening. Mm. But it was a very pivotal moment in our lives together because... It really speaks to the difference in what we were living at the time because we were attacked in the car and all of this happened sometime after midnight. We finally got back into our house at about four o'clock in the morning. And the next morning at eight o'clock, my husband was getting up and leaving for work. Whereas I had not slept all, all night long and I was still shaking. I was so traumatized. And I really spiraled into um you know I was already in sort of a fragile state just from the struggle of the yeah. of the the months leading up to this but I really s- spiraled into a state of post traumatic stress which I think really and I say this with a from a clinical perspective not just the perspective of someone who lived it but I mean I dealt with that trauma as someone who also was was already having a very fragile and complicated sense of purpose already in my life. Mm. I was already asking some really big questions, existential questions like, what am I doing here? Do I really want to be the doctor's wife living here, trying to piece together an existence? Because even though I, you know, I told you I had found a role, it was still something that I was really piecing together and struggling with. And, and, I found that almost losing my life that evening really brought the question forth of what what is the point of my life and and if I am going to be murdered while we're out here doing this could could I say Oh, yes, I died doing what I loved. I Mm. died making good use of my life. And at that time, the answer was no. Whereas my husband, on the other hand, had Um. a very, very strong and clear sense of meaning and purpose, which is why, you know, four hours after escaping from the gangsters, you know, with bruises on his head and knees from getting beaten up with the guns, he was leaving the house to go back to the cholera camp.
0: That's crazy, um, yeah. It's amazing so, how different, yeah. yeah, how your experiences were different and how you coped with this. Uh, so how did you as a couple manage that and to, to move on and for you personally to deal with it? Because it's a very traumatizing event.
1: Well, me personally, the way I managed it is I turned to good friends of which I think that's always been a strong point in my life. So I relied heavily on the support of girlfriends that were there in Nairobi with me. Um, I probably drank too much wine and, you know, if to be honest here, smoked too much pot, but that was also very prevalent at the time there. That's the maladaptive side. (laughs) Um, I threw myself into creative work. I mean, I continued working... um, in the different roles that I had established for myself, but I also did a lot of painting. I did a lot of writing. I did a lot of baking. I became a master baker and I basically just tried to find ways to quell my anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, Because there was a lot of post-traumatic stress, which actually took me several years to resolve. And then to get to the central question there with my husband, we became extremely polarized. I mean, I think most couples that have been through crisis would probably say the same. There was a series of ups and downs. Some things did bring us closer together. Other things um, continued to drive the wedge between us, but we really coped very differently with what had happened to us. And he tends to have a more let's just get on with things attitude, whereas I had a very I can't um, stop being afraid attitude, Um And we became increasingly distant from each other. And then, okay, do we want to say this is maladaptive or adaptive? I mean, I I have no regrets about this, but it was probably a maladaptive decision at the time. As I think probably a lot of people do, I thought, well, we have grown so far apart, and we are so um, not getting along with each other at this point. Let's have a baby to try to fix things.
0: Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> not that's
1: the. Did you really? Of-
0: did you really make this thought consciously?
1: I did make that thought consciously Mm -hmm. following something unconscious that happened, which is the night that we were actually attacked. And I did think that we were going to be murdered when we, when we got away from the gangsters, um, all I could think that night when we were back in the safety of our house was that I wanted to have a baby. Mm -hmm. It was like a, a moment of, Of life.
0: Survival, maybe.
1: Yes. It was like I I felt something inside myself about needing to affirm life. Wow. In all honesty, even though the life that I have today at, you know, the age of almost 47 is so much, I can so much say that I'm living the life that I had always hoped to be living in terms of what I'm doing professionally and personally, even though all of that is in place, if today five men with AK-47s chased me down the road and tried to kidnap me and beat up my husband, I think I would react just as bad as I did then (laughs) because I don't think that I am the type of person that will ever deal with something like that Mm. well because to me you know and and people do deal with trauma differently but for me it was very very traumatic
0: Mm -hmm. but to go back to go back to what you were saying about you know the question was what helps you move on you and your husband you said your first thought was let's have a baby so was it Was that helpful for your relationship?
1: Well, the thing is, that was my first thought at once we got back in the house, but that is not the first thing I did. Okay. I didn't actually operationalize
0: that, <laughs> that thought. Until I like the word operational. That operation. <laughs> happened
1: so that, that okay. about six months later.
0: Okay. So
1: the pregnancy came, all, came on about six months later when I was a little more stable mentally after the carjacking. Um, and then we of course had the baby nine months later. I had my daughter in Nairobi. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but, but I think what happened to us is that at least, you know, speaking for myself, in my case, there was still a lot of unresolved trauma that continued to affect me in a variety of ways. And I, you know, I'm a, survivor. I moved on and we moved to Kampala. My husband had a new role. My daughter was born and five days later, my husband left and he moved to Uganda without us because he had to start his new job. Mm -hmm. A month later with my newborn, I joined him in Uganda. Okay. Then we lived in Kampala for two and a half years. As things continued to get very polarized between me and my husband, and increasingly all we really seemed to share anymore was our love for our child, I started saying, and then he started saying, you know, after Uganda, we're going to move to this place, we're going to move to that place. You know, the places also, you know, we could go to Rwanda, we could go to Burundi, we could go to Angola. And I was saying, I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. I want to go someplace where we, where I can stay put. If you want to keep traveling, because that's the other thing. He was gone 50% of the time. So it's like I was living in Kampala kind of on my own. It's not like he was there all the time with me. It wasn't like we were there having this idyllic life together. He mm-hmm. was in and out traveling a lot. And, I you know. I felt very, very alone. Yeah. And so an opportunity presented itself for him to um, have a position at headquarters in Paris. Mm-hmm. And it was, he didn't want to take it, but I basically, you know, fought and nagged and bugged and pushed and insisted that he take that job so that I could go get stable um, in a place that felt more like the sort of place that I wanted to raise my child in. And where I also saw where I could set up the type of life that I had imagined for Mm -hmm. myself. So the point is, I really kicked and screamed that that we set up our life back in In the Western Hemisphere. And then what happened in the midst of all of this shortly after 9-11 is then I discovered that my husband was having an affair with one of his colleagues. And Mm -hmm. so overnight I packed up my bag and I left. And it just seemed like um, I had had very fantastic, how to say it, I had planned well. Because I don't know what I would have done if if I had found all that out and we didn't have a place to go to in Paris, but we had bought um, literally from afar, we bought a friend's apartment a little teeny-weeny apartment in the 11e arrondissement of Paris. We signed the papers for that apartment at the French embassy in Kampala. And that apartment was waiting for us. We were supposed to move to Paris together and move into that apartment. Um, and instead, what happened is, overnight, I walked out on our life together. I packed up my little two and a half year old and I went to Paris by myself and moved into this little apartment that I had kicked and screamed for. (laughs) Uh, Which, you know, I must sound like such a, a spoiled brat, but I do have to tell you, that was that was five years of existential crisis for me Is is that all the dots started connecting. And I realized that I had agreed to become a quote unquote trailing spouse because that was the model I had grown up with. And I agreed to that knee jerk. It didn't even occur to me to ask myself the question of how do you as a young adult woman want to craft your life. Mm -hmm. So I found myself, you know, off there in East Africa, empty handed, like, oh my God, I have gotten married and I have moved across the world. And the life that I have agreed to is one that is going to keep me uprooted and is going to prevent me from from Realizing that thing that I had determined I wanted, which was stability, geographic stability mm. for myself, which, as I said at the beginning, that is why I had gone to New Orleans. And, you know, in one fell swoop, I had abandoned that idea immediately. It just, okay, oh, sure, yes, of course I'll go to East Africa with mm-hmm. you. Not realizing what I was doing. It was like an act of self-sabotage. And that's, so that is what tra- my first book, Trailing a Memoir, is about. It's about connecting the dots between my experience as a, a kid who grew up With that model of family, the careerist dad that had a career that took us around the world, the family that followed, no questions asked, because that's, you know, how the model is, Mm. to um, sort of blindly agreeing to something that felt very familiar and then discovering because of a traumatic event and a few other things that I had signed up for a life that I didn't want. And then how I found my way back to um, the dream that I had had originally, which was, okay, time to get stable. And I got stable in Paris. I lived in Paris for 10 years, had another baby. Um, That's my son, who's now 11. And um, it was a beautiful chapter. And that's now I'm just sort of talking like crazy. But that's, <laughs> yeah. that's what my that's my second book is about. Yeah. It's about how after all of that, I was convinced by my husband, and boy, he did not have an easy time convincing me <laughs> to give up that stable life again. in Paris to follow him again, uh, this time to Lyon.
0: Nomad Nation. Isn't that a fascinating story how Kirsten has gone through all these crazy challenges as an expat partner she probably had it all and I don't know about you but I'm very curious when I hear this to wonder how first of all did she manage to get over all this heavy you know experience of deep personal uh, identity crisis and also a marriage crisis and the second question is how on earth would she just follow him again after all of that and you will see that actually at the end of the day it's not so much about the fact of following or where we go but a lot about how much of the thought we gave to our decision to move abroad, how did we prepare it, and most importantly, do we know where we stand as an individual, what are our dreams, what do we want to do, and what do we want to build for ourselves. And this is what Chris Kristen is going to share with you in the second episode, how she went from this crazy, deep and, and very difficult crisis to building the stability she was looking for, but also a strong identity and a strong relationship And on top of that, she managed to build a portable business that allowed her to continue to travel with her husband. Amazing story, and I can't wait to share with you all the great insights and the tips she will share with us of what helped her and what could help you turn those challenges into opportunities for you. So I'm very much looking forward to meet with you in the next episode. And in the meantime, do not hesitate to go to the show notes page of this episode on the website of Tandem Nomads where there's all the information about Kirsten and her books if you want to check them out before we meet again next week. So talk to you soon and see you on the next episode. Nomad Nation, don't miss any of the great inspiration, tips and insights that we'll prepare just for you. Go to tandemnomads.com and sign up for the newsletter.